Galatians 5.16, Paul writes, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Amen? Amen. So we're making our way through Galatians and talking about law versus spirit and faith versus works and grace is thrown in there. And Paul has really been hammering on the fact that as believers, we are not under the law, that the law has a place in bringing us to Christ. But once you recognize you need a Savior, the law has done its job. And once we're connected to Christ, we can't have any more righteousness or any more of God. So the natural kickback is, well, how do you control human beings? I mean, if you were in charge of planet Earth and you were watching the news, how would you handle human behavior? How would you handle your own behavior? Really, let's start there. I mean, we've got this, as I mentioned earlier, we've got this planetary crisis, which is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. This isn't the first time that our world has seen these kind of birth pains. It's just maybe the, one of the roughest times in our generation. It's the only pandemic, really, that we've been through. Uh, by the way, my grandmother just turned 104. She was two years old during the Spanish flu, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, she's a neat, neat lady. So health, social, economic, political, resources, racial, all these contentions on planet Earth. What do you do about it? And then we talk about ourselves. I mean, honestly, think about your own behavior. Even as Christians, I mean, we're believers. We're the children of God. And I bet if we asked, you would probably be honest and say, I've had a thought that if people knew that I thought it, it would be embarrassing. Like, imagine if our thoughts were somehow projected over our heads, those thought bubbles. Like, what you were thinking at any given time. Like, I can just imagine during the end of the sermon, seeing thought bubbles pop up. When is he going to finish? I got to go to the bathroom. You know, <laughs> just the things we would be thinking. I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> and that's simple. That's fairly benign comment. But imagine what we think about each other. If that could be known, what would that do to relationships? And have you ever been embarrassed about something you've done or ashamed of something you said or regretted it? and go, where did that come from? Why did I do that? And that's, again, as Christians, we make destructive decisions in a moment of craving or desire. What do you do when the impulse comes to do evil? And we think, well, when we become Christians, it'll get better. And we find out that it actually, in a way, gets worse. Because now, before I was a Christian, I had an impulse. I just did it. I had a sinful impulse the culture validated it, and I did it. There wasn't a moral dilemma. But then when I became a Christian, I became more aware of my behavior. Did you find that to be true of you as well? I became more aware, like, wow, wait, I shouldn't be. That's not right. So actually, the battle got stronger and harder. So the answer that we see in the world, because it's all the world has, is we need more laws. We got to control people with stricter laws more stringent laws, gun laws, all kinds of laws. See, the whole thing is people can't be trusted to make decisions that are moral and right 
So other people that can't be trusted make laws for the people that can't be trusted. Isn't that funny the way that works? So who's controlling the lawmakers? Because they're human too. So we come back to this idea that there's really one ultimate lawmaker, and that's God. And the challenge is when the law is put externally to control people's behavior, there's still the inside of me that rebels against being told what to do. Is it in you too? Come on now, be honest with your pastor. So what do we do, Paul? Help us out. It seems like there's no hope for humanity. I mean, the best we can do is laws, and we do them, and then the prisons fill up, and we have to enforce them. But the prisons are overflowing, and human behavior, talk to me now, is human behavior getting better? It's about the same as it's always been. I mean, Genesis chapter 6, God's got to flood the world because every thought and intention of the human heart was evil. Human behavior is not getting any better. We're the same as we've always been. So what do you do? Well, this is the big, the big answer. This chapter, this section is so important to the Christians then, to us now. Paul says, I say then, verse 16, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. This is the big takeaway, the big psychological, spiritual. The answer is not more law to constrain externally. Again, law is for the lawless people. But for us and for humanity, the answer is the change from the inside. This is the big takeaway. He says, I say then to you, Galatians, how do we control behavior without law? Keep habitually walking in the Spirit and you won't be able to bring to completion the things that your flesh, your human nature desires and craves. To walk means to occupy your life. It's sort of a word play. Walking around is the word that's used. It means living life. How we occupy our lives. Making use of opportunities. Isn't that what our days are about? Every day you have opportunities. And every day you decide what opportunities to make use of. So Paul is saying, keep living your life, and it's an imperative, it's a command, keep living your life according to the prompting of the Spirit, your habitual conduct. And I don't want to get too far into the Greek here, but you have to know this because this is kind of very interesting. When he says, you shall not fulfill, it is the strongest Greek negative. It's a double negative, but in the Greek language, a double negative doesn't mean a positive. It means a strong negative. It literally means It's unable to be done. It can't be done. So if you're walking in the Spirit, it will be impossible to fulfill the desires of the flesh. You can't do both. You can't walk forwards and backwards at the same time. You can't do two opposing things at once. So this is the answer that God gives to us. And then Paul explains it in verse 17. He says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, they're in opposition to one another, so that you do not keep on doing the things that you wish. When I was teaching through Romans chapter 7, maybe you guys know that passage. It's that passage where Paul says, Oh, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I do. I end up doing the very things I hate. And he cries out, Wretched man that I am. Any of you had moments like that? So I've been trying to read some of the classics. I just finished Frankenstein, and I read Jekyll and Hyde. Have anybody read Dr. Jekyll, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? 
I mean, this story has been done and redone. We were talking about it yesterday, and someone said the modern version of that for the Marvel comic people is the Incredible Hulk, a person who is one person yet seems to have two distinct and different natures, one destructive and one positive, two different identities, as it were. And there are only two men on the face of planet Earth that have ever mattered in all of human history. Do you know who they are? Jesus and Adam, the first man. The first man, and there's the last man. And every human being who has ever lived or ever will live will be connected to one or the other. It's only two men that really matter. Not Steve Jobs, not Donald Trump. Sorry to disappoint. The only two men that really matter are Adam and Jesus. So when Paul talks about the flesh, what he's talking about is my desires and passions and cravings that are based on my connection to Adam and original sin. When Adam sinned, it affected all of the human race forever and ever. And we just inherited that sinful nature. And the only rescue for that is not religion, it's Jesus, because Jesus is the last man. The only answer is I got to get out of this relationship and get into this one. That's why Jesus is our Savior. He rescues us by attaching us to himself. And then we get all the negative things that came with Adam. We get all the positive things in Christ. So when he says that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, the recognition is that there's this battle, this tug of war going on, yes, even in the Christian and more so in the Christian. Before I was saved, there was no battle. I just did sinful things. I just did whatever my flesh desired. I had an impulse. I acted on it. I had nothing contrary to that coming in. Culture told me it was okay. Culture sometimes encouraged me to do what was wrong. You found that to be true? Culture encourages us towards sin encourages us toward rebellion and selfishness and all of that. So there's this tug of war, this internal opposition. That's the answer, not external restraint. But God says, look, I'm going to put something in you that takes the battle from outside me against law to me against myself. And what it makes me do is try to figure out which one do I want to be? Have you ever thought about that? You get to choose who you are. You get to choose Christ or choose Adam and all the ramifications that come with that. So God gives us the opportunity to set up inside of us the internal restraint. That's why the Bible says we don't need law. We got law on the inside. We have the law of love that battles it out. I see the guy on the corner of the street with a sign, the cardboard sign that says homeless, will work for food or whatever it says. And I know I should give. There's that part of me that knows I should give to him. But then there's that other part of me that goes, nah, he's just going to spend it on drugs and alcohol. Don't give them. And that's a simple internal conflict. The flesh, they want different things. And that's what Romans 7 talks about. The answer, Paul says in Romans 7, It's not medicine or technology or more restrictive laws. The answer is the Spirit of God. The most powerful thing on the face of the earth is identity. The minute you change a person's identity, you change everything about them. And this is God's plan for you. Not more religion, but a change of identity. 
John Piper wrote this, the spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh. So take heart if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. Has anybody experienced that? Like with Paul, we know what we want to do. We know what we should do, but we don't do it. Paul does this cool thing in Romans 7. If you haven't read that chapter, man, go home, read it again. It's a phenomenal chapter. He says, I recognize that there's this differentiation now that the things I want to do, that's who I really am. Even though I don't always do them, that's who I really am. So the person that does those other things, that's not the real me. It sort of makes that distinction between the two me's that live in me, the one that I identify with and the one that I don't. Does that make sense? And he says, the Greek is so interesting. He says, these are contrary. They're in opposition like two wrestlers on a mat. They're in contradiction to one another so that or in order that or for the purpose of we don't keep on doing the things that we wish. In other words, that's God's plan. I'm going to give you the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to do battle on the inside so you don't fulfill the longings of your flesh. You don't do what you normally would do. I know one of the most crazy things in my life when I got saved is God started to change the things I craved after, the things I wanted. And that is supposed to be not a unique experience, but the normal Christian life. The Spirit of God enters into a person's life. You have to be born again. Being religious will never do it. Let's be honest. They're talking about what good does, well, I don't eat meat. Who cares? What does that do for your relationships? If you say, well, I wear this or I don't wear that. For them, it was, well, we're of the circumcision. That was their sign, their mark. Well, who cares? If you don't really love God, if you're not really transformed, what good is religion if it doesn't change people's lives? Amen. That's how I feel. So this is God's plan that you don't keep on doing the things that you would. But verse 18 says, if you are continually led by the Spirit, you are continually, and I'm bringing out some of the Greek here, you are not continually under the law. To be led is interesting. It's a word that means to lead by taking a hold of, like you would lead an animal by taking hold of it. But I don't know that that really gives the picture because we have donkeys. Did you know we have pet donkeys? Try leading a donkey, which is sometimes I think how God feels with us, right? It's like leading a donkey. Come on, come on. Oh, no. So I think the idea is to be led is the word again means like a lamb led to the slaughter. The same word used of Jesus, like a lamb led to the slaughter was silent. It's to move or to impel the forces or influences of the mind. Anybody ever broken down the side of the road, your car breaks down and you're stuck? So let's say you're working, you've got a boss, and the boss is telling you where you need to be and what time you need to be there, and your car breaks down. And you go, man, I got to get there. So I start to get out and push. And I got 100 miles to get to my destination. I'm pushing and pushing and pushing, but I'm only pushing when other people are looking. When no people aren't looking, then I stop and rest. And that's the picture of law. See, it's the works of the law. I'm doing all this, expending this energy to push and push and push to try to get to the destination that my boss tells me to get to, righteousness. Here's how you get to righteousness. You get out and you push this car because it's broken down. And then I hear about God and Jesus and the Spirit of God. And that's like the tow truck showing up. The tow truck shows up 
I got a driver and a tow truck. I have a source of power and someone that gives me direction. I just hop in and my car, broken down car, is led along, is towed along, tugged along by the tow truck. And that's the idea. It's passive, which means that there's another power exerted to pull me where I need to go. And that's what the Spirit of God is wanting to do in every Christian's life. As long as you are being tugged along in your life by the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, pulling you where Jesus would go, where God wants you to go, what God wants you to do, then you have no need for law. Am I saying the truth here? Do you understand that? If you're going where the Spirit wants you to do, what's the law going to do for you? What effect will it have? Because it's meant to restrain and control behavior like a slave mentality. So now he gives a list, which I'm not going to do in detail. I'll stop and comment on a couple, but it's a long list. Just in case you were wondering, well, how do we know the difference between flesh and spirit? Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Did you find yourself in that list anywhere? Okay, well, that's the one. When I'm in the flesh, that's the one I go for. Jealousies. Yep, that's it. The thing I find so interesting about Romans chapter 7, the big aha moment, is the law and people tend to rely on willpower. How many of you have tried willpower to get over an addiction or to get over some besetting sin? You just go, okay, I'm going to do better tomorrow. It's willpower. That's the answer. How many of you have found that to fail? Anybody? Raise your hand nice and high. We're a bunch of willpower failures. Do you know why? Because willpower is way weaker than emotion. I mean, watch the news. That's what we just read a list of last night's news. Outbursts of wrath, jealousies, envies, dissensions, murders, drunkenness, revelries. That was the news last night. Do you think these people are rationally thinking through? I mean, what sense does it make to loot stores to get your point across about how you feel about racial dissatisfactions and racial inequalities? Come on, tell me you know that when you are in the flesh, you are not reasoning. I mean, look at the first one, adultery. What two people go out and say, you know what? I have an idea. Let's destroy our families. Let's destroy our children. It'll be really fun. No, you're not thinking. If you're in the middle of an affair, you're committing adultery, you're not reasoning. Because when the flesh is unreasonable, the flesh just wants to fulfill. Come on, say amen. The flesh just wants what it wants. You can't reason with flesh. You can't control flesh. The more you try to control the flesh, this is what Paul says in Romans 7, the more you try to give it rules, the harder it rebels. Anybody ever gone on a diet? Then gained more weight? That's the proof. You see, you say, I'm going to go on the diet. Tomorrow the diet starts. And then you, okay, I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to eat that until you just, boom, and you binge on the thing you didn't want to eat for the last two weeks. And that's how it works. That's the willpower. Paul says, he says it right in Romans 7, to will is present with me. I'm not lacking willpower. I'm not lacking the will to do it. The problem is I can never bring it to completion. And that's why he feels so wretched. And Christians 
that live under the law continue to feel the feeling of shame and guilt and fear because they will to do it. They will to do right, but they find that their willpower is just not strong enough. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, emotion is way more powerful than will. Amen? When you're doing it, when you're in the flesh, it doesn't matter what it's going to do or who it's going to hurt. Right now, I just want to let you have it. I want to bite your head off. Because emotionally, that's how I feel. And how I feel right now matters more than what God's Word says. How many of you have ever done that? You've done it. You're like, I know what God's Word says, but right now, I don't care. I'm not forgiving you. I just want to be mad because being mad feels good. This whole list, it feeds something in us, doesn't it? We don't do that stuff for no reason. We do it because it feeds something. And it doesn't make sense because it's ultimately destructive, but we'll take it because right now it addresses some kind of pain that I'm in. Adultery, fornication, where the root of pornography in their day, it had to do with cultic worship, sexual worship, prostitution, that kind of thing, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, that's demeaning to the personhood of God. Have you ever thought about that? Idolatry says, God, I don't like you how you are. I refuse to accept you how you are. I'm going to make you who I want you to be. Try that in marriage. Try making your spouse who you want them to be. See how that works out for you. And that's demeaning to how God made them. If they're going to be changed, it's going to be changed by God. And God never changes. So you're never going to change God. He's going to be who he is. You accept him or you reject him or you enter into idolatry when you say, here's how I want God to be. Sorcery, pharmakia, where we get pharmaceuticals from. Now is the age of medical psychedelics to help people solve their problems and address their pains. Medical psychedelics, LSD and things like that are more and more in the news. Hatred, hostility, contentions, jealousies. I deserve what you have, and I don't want you to have it. It's all selfish, isn't it? Outbursts of wrath. That's that stirring of emotions that then explode. The outbursts of wrath, oftentimes people pleasers who never actually honestly communicate about how they really feel. So they stuff, they stuff, they stuff, they stuff, and they either get wildly depressed or finally it all comes out in an outburst of wrath because they've never actually communicated in an ongoing way how they really feel. So there's outbursts of emotional wrath, selfish ambitions. There's people that like to divide into parties. I want to get you on my side. You have to be, it's either us or them. People that categorize stereotype, well, there's us and then there's them. Instead of letting people be individuals, it's us or them and you got to be with me. You got to be on my side. So that selfish ambition that happens in church happens in the world. That's why people look at the church and go, man, looks just like the world. This is like Paul's writing this to the church. They're doing this stuff. We know this. We've been to churches like this where there's dissensions and rivalries and parties. It's the deacons against the pastor and the pastor against the elders, the women against the pastor's wife. All kinds of nonsense happen. It might be a religious organization, but it ain't spiritual. Heresies, envy. Envy is I hate myself and I wish I were someone else. So I'll sabotage you because I hate you. This is why Facebook stinks. You think I'm going to put on there how great I am because then everybody will like me, but actually everybody hates you. 
because you make them feel terrible about themselves. And then that makes them want to, well, the next one is murders. I'm going to destroy what makes me envious so I can escape the pain of feeling envious and feeling empty and feeling like a nothing because you got your life together, at least on Facebook, and I don't. Drunkenness, another way to address internal pain. Revelries, think fraternity party, and the like. And we all have our go-to in that list. Man, jealousies is one that gets me often. I don't know about you. You have yours. I have mine. Pray for me. The interesting thing he says, and those that are continually doing these things, practicing them, so don't feel condemned or guilty. Yeah, you got angry. You kicked the dog last week because you got angry, you got frustrated, you kicked the dog. You go, oh, maybe I'm not even saved. It doesn't say that these are things that you're not going to heaven because you did this once. But if this is the continual habit of your life, if this is what you want and actually pursue, then he says, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God because who inherits the kingdom of God? God's children do. You ever looked at your kids and said, man, you are one of my children. We don't act like that. Sometimes I looked at my kids and said, well, he's your son, not mine. That comes from your side of the family. No, I use myself as an example, but we, sometimes you feel that way. It's like, whose kid are you anyway? You think God ever feels like that? When he looks at the church, and whose child are you? My kids don't do that. So remember, the kingdom goes to sons who say, I'm walking with my heavenly father. The spirit in us crying out, Abba, Father. We're either Adam's, we're connected to Adam and one of Adam's children, so to speak, or one of Jesus's. So I have a slide to show you guys. From Dr. Ekman, we do a discipleship program here called Head to Heart. Just to show this decaying tree, it's rooted in Adam, really. It's rooted in connection with Adam. And what do we get from Adam? What happened in the garden? Fear. Adam and Eve were afraid. They were afraid of God. They were ashamed of each other. They hid from God. They experienced guilt. They experienced shame. All that's right in Genesis. So if your life is rooted in Adam and rooted in all that's connected to him, what happens is you become self-absorbed. Because when you're in pain, you can't think about anybody else. How many of you know that's true? Any weaklings or wimps when you get the flu or get sick? Guys, come on. We're all tough until we get a sniffle and then we're just, oh, don't talk to me. Just let me die. So people become self-absorbed. And then the result, the fruit of that, the result of that, the work of that is all the things that you saw, lusts and moods and addictions and envies and jealousies and murders and all that. But verse 22 says, on the contrary, Paul says, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and long-suffering, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And against such there is no law. He doesn't say the works of the Spirit. He doesn't say that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not me pushing the car in a different direction. Do you get that? It's not me. Now I'm, I was working in a religious direction, but now I'm going to work in an emotional direction. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to will myself to be happy. I'm going to will myself to love. Has that been successful for you? It's not the fruit of Steve. It's not the fruit of tradition. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And fruit is always based on identity. We have fruit trees. I have a lot of practical preaching examples at our house. So how many of you love cherries? Oh, I love cherries. 
It's cherry season. How many of you looked and you saw at Costco, the cherries are like seven bucks a pound. So we've got two Rainier cherry trees. And the one cherry tree has just been loaded. So I'm up climbing this big ladder, picking cherries. The problem is our cherry trees also have a fungus. And there's this competition between the fruit is coming out, but the fungus is killing some of it. But why does that cherry tree have cherries on it? Isn't that a silly question? Why doesn't the cherry tree have apples? Because it's not an apple tree. It's a cherry tree. Why is it a cherry tree? Because that's what its essence is. That's what it is. That's what essence means. Essence is from the Latin essay, which means to be. That's what it is. So that's what it has. The fruit naturally comes because of what it is. See, the spirit, the flesh has its passions and desires, and the spirit has his passions and desires. And love is the primary fruit. All the rest is the expression of love. We call it the passion of the Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the indispensable proof of a Christian life. doesn't matter how many religious rituals or traditions you engage in. If you are not a loving person, if you're not growing in love, passionate love, affectionate love. You think Jesus was dispassionate about his sacrifice for us? You think he said, well, I got nothing better to do. Might as well die on the cross for them. I mean, they don't really deserve it, but... I'll do it. You think he was passionate about it? He was passionate about it. By this we know love, because Christ loved us and gave his life. You know, you can mandate loving things, but it will never be as real as when you cultivate a loving passion inside a person. When you love something, the Bible says you can love the world and things of the world. The same word, agape. You can agape the world. You can agape the things of the world. You can have a passionate desire for all the world has to offer. Or you can have a passionate desire for all the things of God. And joy, I mean, joy, we've reduced that to, well, joy, it's really an inward sense of contentment. Come on. Is joy an emotion or is joy not an emotion? When you're joyful, when you meet someone who's joyful, do you know it? Do you see it? We've got people that look like they're baptized in lemon juice or vinegar going, yeah, pastor, I'm joyful. You don't look joyful. You don't sound joyful. I have no reason to believe that you are joyful. I'm teaching my granddaughter, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, and you really want to show it. People that are loved are joyful people. And people that love, you want to know what brings happiness? Serving brings happiness. Loving brings happiness. So love, joy, peace, the sense of completeness, long-suffering, patience with people, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I better wrap this up. Self-control, that's the part of the fruit of the Spirit that when you're at peace, when you experience joy, and when you're loved and loving. You know, we say hurt people hurt people. You know that saying? Loved people love people. And when you have those three emotions primarily in your life, love, joy, and peace, instead of guilt, fear, and shame, then you find self-control comes a lot easier. The Spirit now is in control of my life. So we have a different tree to show you here. So that tree is God's plan for humanity. People that are in union with Christ are experiencing God's love. He's already pleased. He's as pleased with you as he is with his own son. 
You've been chosen. You have value based on Christ. You're accepted by the Father. And the fruit on that tree is love and joy in the things we just read. And against such, there is no law. There's no restriction. Well, Steve, you get pulled over by the police officer. And well, we had to pull you over because you're just too loving. What do you do with people in your life that are too loving? Other than the fact that they make you sick and envious because of your flesh, right? I'm jealous because you're too loving. (laughs) There's no law against that. And those who are Christ, verse 24, have crucified the flesh with its passions and subsequent desires. So the flesh has its passions and desires. The spirit has its passions and desires. So we are Christ and we have nailed myself and the old man to the cross with everything that comes with that. Now, I mentioned reading Jekyll and Hyde. Page 114 of my copy, Dr. Jekyll is having this conversation with himself. Now, Dr. Jekyll's the good guy. Mr. Hyde is the bad, the one who is pursuing all of the sinful things and all of that. Between these two, he says, Jekyll and Hyde, and this is Jekyll speaking, I now felt I had to choose. To cast in my lot with Jekyll, the positive, the good, was to die to those appetites which I had long secretly indulged and had of late begun to pamper. To cast it in with Hyde was to die to a thousand aspirations and to become at a blow and forever despised and friendless. If I connect myself to Hyde, to the sinful man, to my sinful nature, to Adam, really, we would say Hyde is Adam. If I connect myself to Adam and stay connected to Adam, then I die to all of the spiritual potential of my life. I die to relationship with the living God. I gain some destructive personal pleasures that are momentary, but lead to death. I can enjoy, again, if you want to call leaning over with your head in the toilet, enjoying. If you want to call going through a nasty adultery thing, enjoying. Was it worth it? Really, was it worth it? You gave up what for what? I mean, I think about Esau, who traded away his blessing for a stupid bowl of porridge because he was going to die. If I don't get it, I'm going to die. If I can't have it, I'll just die, pastor. No, you won't. God's got something much better for you. So I'll die to those things. But if I cast it in with Jekyll, with the good guy, with Christ, then I have to no longer pamper my secret life. Do you know how many Christians live secret lives? That's what Declan Hyde is about. It's about how easy it is to live a double life and try to coddle both of them and neither of them work. Have you learned that? If you try to live both, then neither will be effective. You have to be all in on one side or the other. And the good news is you get to choose. You get to choose. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have your Jekyll and your Hyde too. You can't have Jesus and Adam too. So Paul is saying for those of us that are Christians, we have decided at a point in our lives to join ourselves to Christ. And when that happens, my old man, the, the connection to Adam was taken to the cross. When Christ was crucified, I was crucified with him. When he was resurrected, I was resurrected with him to live a new life with new passions and new desires. And that's why Paul says, walk and keep walking. Organize your whole life around the Spirit. 
because it's really super hard to do sinful things when you're busy loving people. It's really super hard to be filled with hatred when you're filled with peace. Do you see the difference? They're contrary to one another. This final quote from Jekyll and Hyde, he said, strange as my circumstances were, the terms of this debate are as old and commonplace as man. Much the same inducements and alarms cast the die for any tempted and trembling sinner. And he goes on. The real danger, what Dr. Jekyll fell into, is that he came to a place where he knew he wanted to be Jekyll. He didn't like the things of Hyde, but Mr. Hyde had his own apartment and his own set of clothes, just like the Hulk. When the Hulk comes out, he's bigger. He's this big monster. When the flesh comes out, the flesh is like a big monster, this outburst of wrath or this desire to binge or this desire to whatever, to fulfill this lust. It's big and it's bigger than life. So what he did, he said, I don't want that anymore, but I'll keep the clothes around because Hyde wore bigger clothes. So he decided that just in case, he would keep those clothes around. Then when the temptation came, when the passion came, when the craving came, it was easy just to turn back. And that's why Paul says, don't play fast and loose with the old man. Don't keep the clothing of the old man around. They say, well, if I'm really mad and I really want to express myself, I'll use cursing because that really makes people listen. Or I'll really get angry. I'll really intimidate people because that's the way I get my way but I'll mostly be loving, but I'll hang on to this because I'm afraid to let go of it. I'll hang on to my drugs just in case things get really bad. I'm afraid that Christ won't be there for me. And maybe I got to turn back to drugs or alcohol to solve my problems and deal with my pain. Verse 25, if or since we live in the spirit, let us also walk or take every, means to march in rank, take every step according to the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, which is exactly what they were experiencing from the legalists in Galatia. So that's what Paul has to say to them. That's what the Spirit of God has to say to you and to me. I don't think this chapter could be any more relevant to the world we live in today. The big answer, when you talk to people, don't get sidetracked by side piddly issues and arguing about nonsense. Do you have the Spirit? Have you been born again? I don't care if you're Methodist or Baptist or Pentecostal or whatever. It doesn't matter. Have you been born again? Does the Spirit of the living God dwell inside of you? And have you seen evidence of that? What evidence? My life is growing in love. I'm experiencing greater peace, even now. God's people right now, let me tell you, God's people are experiencing peace. Anybody here experiencing peace? And if you're not, that's okay. Just means you're in the flesh. You got to go to God and say, well, you know, I need to figure out why I'm experiencing unrest. Do I not trust God? Am I not getting what I want? What's the deal? Those are all those negative things are just signs. I got to take this to the Lord so he can restore to me love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and so forth. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we recognize for as dark as our times are, that we expect the Spirit in your church to shine brighter than we have seen in a long time. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. As for me and my house, we're going to continue to worship you. So Lord, bring in a mighty revival. Open ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen, amen, amen.